Bibles this morning, I invite you to take them and join me in the 47th chapter of the book of Genesis, please. Genesis chapter number 47. And I wanted to share with you as you're turning there, um, many of you know that we as a church family had a goal uh, for our Christmas offering. We were praying that the Lord would allow us as a church uh, to raise $50,000. And of course, it was going to be divided between three different uh, ministry opportunities. We were going to send uh, 30000 of that for the Asian Bible Project, which is a ministry really that's centered here in our church uh, in which we are um, trying, we are trying, we're in the very infant stages of this, but we have a burden to try to put a Bible into every home in Asia. If you start thinking about how big Asia is and how many millions, really billions of people live there, you understand that's a God-sized vision, but we're thankful that our God still sits on the throne. And, uh, and so we... Um, uh, we, we wanted to give 30000 to that and then $10,000 to the Grace Oasis Project in Botswana, uh, which is a uh, ministry retreat center there, uh, some missionaries that we support, and that's going to go towards the renovation. The property's been paid for, but obviously there's some renovation that needs to be done there. And then $10,000 would go to the Heritage Baptist Church in Willoughby, and this is a new church plan out of our church so the goal was 50000 and uh, some of you were asking me last, uh, last Sunday where we were, and I didn't have exact numbers, but an email went out this week, and I'm just so just filled with joy to share with you that as a church, we gave $75,000 to that, and so the excess funds are going uh, all to go to the Asian Bible Project, and so uh, we're so uh, delighted that we can, uh, we can actually pump more than $55,000 into that as a church family this year. And somebody asked, you know, well, what, what does a Bible cost? And so much of that just depends on whether they're just going to get a, a John and Romans or whether they're going to get a New Testament or a whole Bible. And I just saw here recently, I thought this is a novel idea of a group of people that are actually putting a Bible on a jump drive. And uh, most folks have access to a computer. And so rather than a, an actual copy, it, you can do it digitally, and that's maybe much more cost-effective. And so we'll probably look into that type of thing as well to see what we can do. Uh, but we believe in the power of God's Word. And so we're going to jump right into God's Word this morning. But I did want to just take a moment and thank you, church family, for your faithfulness to get behind that vision and to give, and to give sacrificially. We've been working our way through the life of Joseph and I've heard from so many of you that this study has been a help and an encouragement. And I just want you to know that before it's ever help and encouragement to you, it is to me first. And I feel very strongly about the message the Lord's given us this morning that God is going to use this uh, in all of our lives. I know he's used it in my life already. Look with me in verse number one, if you would. But the Bible there says, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan. Behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, for thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. And the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days... Of the years of my pilgrimage, 
are 130 years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. I want to focus on that word that's found on two separate occasions there in the ninth verse where Jacob says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. He says at the end of the verse, speaking of his fathers, he says, the days of my years have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. I'd like to spend just a few moments this morning talking about this idea, this concept of pilgrims. Pilgrims. I was born on Tuesday, June the 19th, 1979, to Kevin and Denise Folger. I was born at the Fairview General Hospital here on Cleveland's west side. So I took some time. I thought, well, that was a while ago. So I took some time. How many days? How many days? Because he says specifically, he talks about the days of the years of his life. How many days have I been on planet Earth? And there's this amazing thing called Google. And so I went to Google. I hope Google is right. (laughs) And I typed in, how many days has it been since June the 19th, 1979? And here you go. I have been on this earth. The days of the years of my pilgrimage so far have been 16,273 days. Now think about that for a moment. Who whistled? Nobody ought to be whistling. It's not... (laughs) It's not that much. I guarantee if we were to pull Google up for you, we'd all be whistling, you know. (laughs) 16,273 days, the sun came up in my life, and 16,273 days, the sun has gone down. And by the way, God has been faithful every moment of every day. God has been so good to me. I was thinking about how blessed I am by the Lord Nearly every day, I spend some time just thanking God for his faithfulness to me. To this point, only by God's grace, what I'm going to say here is only by the grace of God, but to this point, I've never broken a bone. I've never required a surgery. I've never had to declare bankruptcy. I've never been divorced. I've never been to jail I could go on and on with the blessings that God has placed upon my life. I was thinking as I was putting this message, it hasn't all been roses. You know, there have been some difficult days. I mean, after all, I am a Cleveland sports fan, so there have been some difficult days here in my pilgrimage in this, in this life. But, uh, but, but in all seriousness, I have been blessed and I have been highly favored. Now listen, all of these good things could end tomorrow. And if that were so, if that were so, I would rightly not be able to complain because God has been so good to me. Jacob references his pilgrimage in Genesis 47 and verse number nine. And I believe he touches on a very significant truth. In other words, I I think he uses this term and 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 it speaks into all of our lives as believers here on this earth. The word pilgrim means a wanderer or a traveler. In scripture, the word means one that has only a temporary residence on earth. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 13, these all died in faith, speaking of the patriarchs, speaking of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Joseph and the others. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers, and there's that word, and pilgrims on the earth. 
I took just a few moments this week in my own personal study, and I looked up the Greek word used for pilgrim uh, here in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 13, and it's the Greek word peripedemos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but here's what it means. It means alien alongside, or it means resident foreigner. It, it carries with it the idea that, that I'm here, but I really don't belong here, that I'm just passing through. I'm here, but I likely won't be here very long. Now, much had changed in Jacob's life over the previous two chapters. Think about all that had transpired in the life of Jacob. At the end of Genesis 45, Jacob learns that his son, who had been dead for 20 years, was actually alive and thriving in Egypt all this time. In Genesis 46, Jacob leaves his home of many years there in Canaan to go and to be with his son in Egypt. But though he is now living in Egypt, a place where there was food and where there was family, Jacob confesses here to Pharaoh that he is, listen, he is what he has always been. He was a pilgrim in Canaan. He was a pilgrim when he was with Laban. And he is still a pilgrim in the land of Egypt and in this place called Goshen. Though a great deal had changed in his life over the past months, one thing remained the same and would always be true of Jacob, this great man of faith. And that is this, that he was simply a pilgrim. He's just a traveler. He's just a wanderer. He's just a, he's just a foreigner down here. And may, may, may listen, may, may you and I get a hold of this truth and may we never lose sight of it that this is not home. That we're just pilgrims. We're just wanderers. I have to tell you, it's very hard, but it's very important that we, that we train our minds to think biblically. And that we train ourselves to think as Jacob thinks here. You see, when asked where my home is, I always respond, Cleveland, Ohio. If I'm out traveling and somebody says, where are you from? I'll always tell them Cleveland, Ohio. If I want to get a little bit more specific with it, I'll tell them Parma Heights, Ohio, because that's the suburb that I live in here in this area. But I, I want you to know something. Listen, Cleveland, Ohio is not home for me. Parma Heights, Ohio is not home for me, for you, uh, for me. And wherever you live is not home for you. I'm just a wanderer down here. I'm an alien in a very foreign place. Far too many believers have lost sight of the fact that they're just pilgrims. Instead, we, we've made ourselves right at home in a place that we should feel very uncomfortable. At the end of hundreds of years of rebellion, God finally, God finally brought chastisement upon his people by allowing them to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God promised that he would make a way for them to return back to the promised land, but it would not be until the 70 years were expired. In other words, the, the punishment was going to last for 70 years, and at the end of that 70 years, then they would be brought back. Here's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So God says, listen, I'm going to allow you to be expelled from this land because of your rebellion and because of your wickedness, and you're going to have to wander for 70 years. But at the end of that 70 years, I want you to come back. I want you to come back home. I'm going to bring you back to this place. Some did return. The Bible is clear about that. 
But many more grew quite content living in Babylon and eventually in Persia, and they never went back to the land God had given them and God had told them to dwell in. And in other words, in other words, they, they left there and they were just to be pilgrims. They were just to be wanderers, to be travelers for 70 years. And then God would bring them back. But listen, they never returned. They grew so comfortable living in exile, living in a land of captivity, that they never went back home. Can I help you to understand that in some respects, I believe that there are some Christians who are living similarly today. We've grown quite comfortable down here and we've lost the sense that we are simply pilgrims. In our text, we discover some questions. I, I, find, I find two questions that are directly asked, and then, I, and then I feel like there's a third question that is not asked but is implied as I read this, this scripture. And, and these are questions that are asked oftentimes of, of, of us from those who view this life and this world as home. And every time, every time you hear these questions, may you be reminded that it's likely coming from someone who's not thinking of themselves as a, as a pilgrim, as a wanderer. But no, they're thinking of this life, this world as home. This is all that there is. I believe these questions are great reminders to keep us focused on our status as pilgrims. You see, there will always be a natural drift in all of our lives to settle down here, to make ourselves very comfortable here, to live, to live only for here and now and for this day and not to give much thought to a world and to a life that we've only ever seen by faith. And so there will be a natural tendency in my life as the preacher of this message and in your life as the listeners, the hearer of this message to drift away from this idea of, of the fact that we're just pilgrims. As you think about your pilgrimage down here, consider, consider these questions that are asked. And may it readjust or reorient your mind to this idea, this understanding. Listen, I am just a wanderer. I'm just a traveler. This world is not my home. First question that I find in verse number three is asked by Pharaoh to Joseph's brothers. And here's the question. What do you do? What do you do? The question itself is, what is your occupation? What is your occupation? What do you do. Here's what you should understand. If you haven't figured this out by now, you should understand this. The world defines a man or a woman by what they do. That, that, that's, what defines, that what's, that's what defines a man or a woman in this world is what they do. Pharaoh asked them, what is your occupation this was the first question that he asked of Joseph's family, likely, likely because it was the most important question in his mind about them. And I got to thinking, you know, in some respects, that's the type of world that we're living in as well. I mean, from a very early age, our children are told um, that from the time that they're small, work really, really hard in school so you can go to college someday so that you can get a great job and so that you can live a comfortable life. So in other words, from, from, the, from a very young age, we're, we're, we're programming them to think occupation, occupation, occupation. What you're going to do is really the most important thing in all of life. You better get that down. And in order to have a good occupation, you've got to work really, really hard and you've got to study and you've got to get good grades. And education is the most important thing. Occupation, occupation, occupation. And we're, and we're, and we're programming our children along these lines. 
What do you do? That's the most important thing. And we almost, as parents, sometimes we almost carry a sense of guilt or shame if, if, our, you know, if our kids, you know, if, we, if we can't put the bumper sticker on the back of our car. My child is, a, is an honor roll student. My child made the, you know, the dean's list. My child this and my child that. It's like, if I can't put that on the back of my van, you know, because, you know, you can't really be a parent unless you have a minivan. I think that's the way it works. Or an SUV, I guess, you know, lugging them around. And, 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 that, and that becomes... That becomes the end all be all. What do you do? In this world today, often a man with a title and an office wearing a nice suit of clothes is viewed as superior to a man who clocks in every day to work in a factory and goes home every night smelly and sweaty with grease all over his clothes. A man without a college degree is viewed as less than a man with a college degree we like to think that we've moved on from the archaic social caste systems of old, but in some respects, I, I feel like we still sort of think this way. It's, it's all about what you do. What's your title? How many degrees do you hold? What level of education have you completed? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of neighborhood do you live in? What does your 401k say about you? It says you're either successful or it says that you're not successful. And that's the world that we're living in. What do you do? The world defines a man by what he does. Now, don't misunderstand the point here. Do not walk away from here and think to yourself, all right, the pastor and the word of God has given me license to be lazy and to not work and to, you know, not have to do anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that doesn't define you. I, I do believe in hard work and I do believe in working hard and doing the best that you can. I believe that everyone ought to have some occupation. They ought to be doing something in this life. See, God put Adam into the Garden of Eden and gave him a job to do. He was to dress that garden and he was to keep it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15. And by the way, that predates the fall. In other words, work is not a result of the curse of sin. Sweating while you're working is a result of the curse of sin. The earth not cooperating with us is a result of the curse of sin. But listen, I got news for you. You were going to work no matter what. You know, sometimes we like to say, well, you know, if Eve hadn't eaten that, it's all her fault that I got to get up at 5.30 in the morning and go to work. No, you were going to get up at 5.30 no matter what. It's just your machine is going to break down now. <laughs> it wouldn't have broken down before, but it breaks down now in the, in the fields. And I, last night I was, I was out, I was at a wedding, I was talking to a man who's a dairy farmer. He milks 40 cows twice a day. It was 7, 7.30 in the evening when we were talking, and he said, when I get home, he says, I still got to milk those cows a second time. And, um, and, and I said, how long is it going to take? He said, it's take me an hour and a half or so. And I said, well, you, you probably don't do it by, by hand anymore, do you? He said, no, we got a machine, but still, there's time involved. And, and I asked him, I said, how many days have you had a vacation as a dairy farmer? He goes, I can't take vacation." He said, I have to be there every single day. I thought, wow, what a life. That's part, that, listen, that's part, of, that's part of how it works. You and I, we, we have an occupation. We have to do something. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. The Bible says in Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So understand, the world, listen, the world defines 
The world defines a man by what he does. But listen, a pilgrim is not a pilgrim. You, you and I as believers, we are not defined by what we do. So well, what, then what defines us? Well, think about the word pilgrim. It speaks of the idea of a wanderer, a traveler, a foreigner. Can I, can I say this? Listen, as we think about the second thought, the world defines a man by what he does. But listen, understand that pilgrims are defined by where they are going. I'm not defined by what I do down here. I'm defined by where am I going someday. In other words, this is not all there is. Jacob was a shepherd. His father Isaac was a shepherd. His grandfather Abraham was a shepherd. When they came into Egypt, Joseph warned them. He he gave them a heads up. He said in Genesis 46 and verse number 34, he said, listen, I want you to know something. The Egyptians view the shepherds as an abomination. In In other words, what you do what you do coming here from Canaan is not, is not really highly, all that highly thought of here in Egypt. It's an abomination. We're, we're more civilized than that. We, uh, we, 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 we go to the offices and, and we, we work with, you know, our, you know, with, with our minds and, and, uh, and, and we live in nicer neighborhoods. You're wanderers. You live in tents. You, you're constantly looking for the next field, the next stream where you're going to take your flock. Egyptians don't live that way. In fact, we view those who live that way as an abomination. So he warned him about that. But I don't, I don't find that that was all that bothersome to Jacob and to his family. And here's why. Because pilgrims aren't bothered by what the world around them thinks about them. Because it's not, it's not about what you think about me. It's not about what you think about my occupation. What's most important is the fact that at the end of this life, I know where I'm going. A pilgrim is not defined by what he does. He is defined by where it is that he is going. Some might hesitate to be in a place where their occupation was despised. That might have been a problem for a lot of people, but it doesn't seem to be a problem for Jacob and his family because pilgrims aren't where they are at any point in time for very long anyways. Just as Canaan was a temporary home, so Egypt would be a temporary home. Let the world think what they will about us. Here's here's why. Because we aren't home yet. Someday we will be. But I must keep my eyes fixed on where I'm going. And that enables me to to endure anything that might come along this journey. The world will want to know what it is that you do. What is your occupation? where Where do you go every day when you go to work? How much money do you make? What neighborhood do you live in? What kind of car do you drive? How much, how much retirement do you have set aside? Where are your kids going to go to college? And that's how the world lives. That's not how pilgrims live. Pilgrims obviously give attention to these things, but this is not all that there is. No, as pilgrims, we have our eyes fixed on another place. It's not about what I'm doing right here, right now. But more than that, it's about where I'm going what is waiting for me in that place? There's a second question that is asked. It's asked in verse number eight. The first question was from Pharaoh to Joseph's brothers, what do you do? The second question is found in verse number eight, and it is from Pharaoh to Joseph's father, Jacob. And here's the question, how old art thou? So the question the world wants to ask, what do you do? And then they want to ask this, how old are you? How old are you? You ever wonder why that's such a an important thing to a lot of people. I learned a long time ago that you, you don't ask certain people how old they are. You just don't do it. Figure that out. 
know what I've also figured out? I've also figured out that the older someone gets, the more that sort of comes back around and that sort of becomes a trophy. You know, so when, when, you've, got a, when you've got a middle-aged individual, you, you don't ask that, but when it's obvious, because that's what's going on here, J- Pharaoh is looking at Jacob and it is evident that this guy is really old. And so he asks him the question. And I've done that. I've been sitting in a nursing home or I've been sitting in a hospital and, and I, normally, I'll, I normally preface it this way. If you don't mind me asking, and that sort of gives them some wiggle room because if they, if they want, they can say, I mind. And I can say, all right, I'll buzz off, you know. <laughs> it's fine. I don't, I don't really need to know. But I'll say something like this. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you anyways? And I've learned that I can ask that of certain people and certain people I can't ask that about. Jacob appears before Pharaoh and, and it seems that Pharaoh is taken aback with Jacob's aged status. You know, the Bible commentators that I was reading for him as we were preparing for this message seem to indicate that maybe those living in Egypt didn't live quite as long as those living in Canaan did. And I don't know all the reasons for that, but that might be some, some, some speculation there that's been made. Uh, for an individual, listen, who is at home down here. In other words, if this is all that there is, how old someone is is really, really important. In fact, in fact, it, in some respects, it might even, it probably is even more inqu- important than what do they do. Because, because listen, when, when life is all about down here, then every single day down here is viewed as another win. Because this is all that I have. I don't know where I'm going when I die. And so I am living, I am living simply for this life and this life alone. Every day, every week, every month, Every year is of utmost importance. Didn't we see a little bit of evidence of this thinking and of this concept about four years or so ago? As we entered into that crazy 2020 pandemic year. And, and you know what I, I thought to myself? I thought, I thought we, were, we were living in a world full of people who were, who were willing to stop living in order that they might continue to live. I thought that was so fascinating. The COVID madness, everybody, everybody basically said, I'm going to quit living for however long it takes so that I can keep living at the end of this thing. And we, and we lost. We lost days and weeks and months with family and friends and doing what it is that we love to do or maybe what God has put in our hearts to do. So you can understand why this question would be asked. I mean, if life down here is all that there is, then, then how old someone is determines who is blessed or who is the winner. It's sort of viewed like this. A short life equals losing, while a long life equals winning. The longer someone lives, the more successful they must be because they got more days down here. Because listen, if, if, if you're not a pilgrim, if this is home, if this is life, then I'm wanting to hold on to this as long as I possibly can. I don't want to let go of it. This is all that there is. If I'm a pilgrim, I don't think that way. No, no, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not in a hurry to die. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not eager for that to happen. But by the same token, if God were to take me home today, I'm still winning because I know where I'm going. And I'm going to be there for all of eternity. And it's a whole, whole lot better of a place than what, I'm dealing with down here is. Now listen, I, that, that, that has to say something to each and every one of us because we love it down here. I mean, we really do. That's why, that's why none of us are in a hurry to die. It's why when you 
feel like something's not right with your body, you schedule an appointment with the doctor and you do what the doctor says. Why? Because you want to keep living. And if that's how we feel about down here, oh, what's it going to be like over there? It's going to be so glorious. It's so wonderful. So, so notice that pilgrims look at things differently. I want you to consider Jacob's response to Pharaoh's question is so telling. The question is, how old are you? And jo- Jacob gives, he gives the answer, but he says, he, he says two things. He says, I'm 130 years old. But then he says this. He says that his time here has been brief. So as he gives this answer, he says, I'm 130 years old. But he says, few, few have the days of my life been. It's interesting, isn't it? Jacob is essentially saying, 130 years, and yet my life has been very, very brief. Now, we might roll our eyes a little bit at this response, right? Come on. I I thought to myself, 130 years is not a, a short amount of time. I got to thinking of all that has transpired in our world in the last 130 years. In other words, if Jacob were standing before us today and we were to ask him, how old are you? And he says, 130 years old. I'm 130 years old. And he says, few have the days of my life been. We would look at him and say, okay, he's lost it. He's lost it because 130 years is not a a short amount of time. It's not brief. Now think about it. If Jacob were standing before us today, he would have been born in 1894. (laughs) That's crazy, isn't it? That's when he would have born. If he was standing before us today, and he says, I'm 130 years old, he'd have been born in 1894. Uh, Grover Cleveland was the president in 1894, just to kind of give you an idea of how long ago that was. Grover Cleveland was the president. The, the population of the United States of America was 62 million people. That's it. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of people. Well, it's a lot until you compare it to how many is living here today. Today, there are 331 million people living in America. In 1894, there were only 42 states, and no one had ever heard of World War I or World War II. How could anyone say that 130 years is equivalent to their days being few? You ever ask yourself the question, how can you say that? Few? 130 years is a long time. And yet I think we find the reason why Jacob said that. Number one, number one, he makes the statement that my years have been brief, first of all, because of comparison. Comparison. Look what he says a little bit later in this passage, in verse number nine. He says, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob looks at Pharaoh, he says, I'm 130 years old. And Pharaoh's eyes maybe got real big. Wow, 130? Jacob says, well, don't, don't get too twisted here. He says, that sounds like a lot, but in comparison to the days of my fathers. He said, well, how long did Jacob's fathers live? Well, Jacob's, Father Isaac, he, he died at the age of 180. He lived 50 years at this point in time, longer than Jacob lived. And his grandfather Abraham, he died at the age of 175. And so Jacob is looking at himself and he's thinking that my, my time here on this earth has is, is, is got to be winding down. I'm 130 and I'm never going to get to live as long as my father or my grandfather lived. And so in comparison, my days have been brief because they got to live 45 and 50 years at this point in time longer than I did. He makes the comparison game. Can I, can I just caution you for a moment here this morning against playing the comparison game? It's always an unwise thing to do. And yet we so often do it anyways. The point is this, listen, you can always find someone older than you, smarter than you, 
richer than you. It's going to come as a shock. You can always find someone better looking than you. <laughs> but we do. We play that comparison game, don't we? You, know, you got a little boy. He's in his backyard, and he's shooting hoops, and he thinks, pretty good ball player. I'm the best in my family. Well, great. Then he goes to school. Maybe he's the best in his class, but then he starts playing other classes, and he realizes, you know, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. And then they start bringing other schools in to compete against him, and he realizes... You know, we make the comparison game, and when we do, we can always find someone more talented than we are, someone with better this or better that than we have. And Jacob indicates that his life was brief because he was comparing it to his father and his grandfather, even though we're sitting here and we're comparing our lives to him, and we're saying, man, 130 years is not brief. And even right now, you're sitting in this pew and you're playing the comparison game. It's always a dangerous thing to do. Sometimes when someone dies, we'll so how old were they when they died? 62, 63. Huh, what a shame. Hmm. They didn't get to live as long as this person or that person. Comparison. It's a dangerous game to play. He says, the days of my life have been brief, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He's not only saying this, I think, by, by way of comparison, but I think he's also saying this because he's a pilgrim, he has eternity in view. How could he say the days of my life have been brief? Well, because I'm comparing it to my father's. Well, well, still, that's still a long time compared to other people. How can you say that, Jacob? Maybe if you would have gotten Jacob alone and away from everybody else, he would have said, you know, I could live for 1,300 years. I could live for 13,000 years, and it still would be brief in light of eternity. The truth of the matter is, no matter how long you live down here, it is, but, it is but a brief window in time compared to what's waiting on the other side. Eternity is waiting. The song we used to sing, with eternity's values in view. Help me to live with eternity's values in view. Wouldn't it change the way that we conduct our affairs? Wouldn't it change the way we live our lives if we stopped thinking about the here and now and if we started thinking about, no, what's waiting for me on the other side? Eternity. Eternity. Jacob, as a pilgrim, perhaps is saying that 130 years of life is a long time if you're just keeping score down here, but if you're thinking of eternity, it is a brief space or window of time. Can I gently remind you that this life, no matter how long you live it, is very short, and the life that is to come is eternal. Each of us in this room would do very well to prepare for the life to come with the few days that God gives us down here. In other words, in other words every day down here is a gift to help us be prepared for what is coming next. This is not all that there is. There is another life that is coming. The Bible is clear that those who have the Son, they have eternal life. Not the Son, S-U-N, the Son, S-O-N, speaking about Jesus Christ. Those who believe on the name of Jesus, they have eternal life. But those who do not believe on the name of the Son of God, the Bible says that they are condemned already. The point is this. You might sit here and say, well, I'm just a young person. I have a lot of time to make that decision. I think the reality is you better make that decision today because there are no guarantees of the rest of today nor are there guarantees of tomorrow. Jacob didn't just say that his life here had been brief. but Jacob also stated that his life here had been bitter. We says there at the end of, in the middle of verse number nine, few 
and evil have the days of the years of my life been? While his days had been very few, they'd also been very evil. Jacob's life had featured plenty of heartache and plenty of drama. By the way, some of it self-inflicted, some of it not. Jacob grew up in a somewhat dysfunctional home in which his father favored his brother and his mother favored him. He fled from that home eventually because he'd gotten himself into sort of a mess there with his brother. And he only fled there to land in another dysfunctional home, the home of his father-in-law, Laban. He was deceived into marrying sisters, two girls, and eventually he added two more wives to the mix of his home and family. His children were violent and rebellious, and he spent 20 years mourning the death of a son who never died. This is just a 35,000-foot view of Jacob's life. We, we, we could say as we think about just the, just the, the, the view from, from, a, from up top, we would have to agree with him. Yeah, you've had some evil days to live through. You've had some really challenging things to deal with. Jacob's summation of life has biblical merit. Because here's what the Bible says in Job 5, 7. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. The Bible says in Job 14, 1. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse number 23. The Bible says, for all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. I just want you to know it is not possible to live down here and not face trouble and not face heartache. This is why, this is why I really do. I feel so bad for those who are only living life for this present moment. Because this life is bitter enough as it is. But the life to come, listen, is beyond bitter for the unprepared. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, you think, you think your days down here have been evil? You, you haven't seen anything yet. What is waiting for those people on the other side? That ought not to fill our hearts with joy or glee. It ought to break our hearts. To think that there are people who are, who are clinging to every day. They're holding on to it. This is all that there is. Giving very little thought to the fact, no, there's another life to come. And that life is much longer than this one. And if you're unprepared, that life is much more bitter than this life could ever be. The third and final question that I think we ought to consider as pilgrims. First two questions are asked by Pharaoh. I think this one maybe is just asked in a general sense. It's not, it really doesn't even appear, but we, 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 find some, uh, we find some things here that I think answer this question. And The third question I want to ask of pilgrims is this. What impact have you made? You're a wanderer down here. You're here for a reason. You know, God could have saved us and God could have immediately removed us and taken us on to be with him at that point in time, but he left us here for a reason. Surely there there must be a reason as to why he has left us here. Some of you have been been saved, I should say, for more than 50 years. Why do you suppose God saved you 50 years ago and then let you live another 50 years down here without taking you on to glory to be with him? What's that all about? You ever ask that question? Why am I still here? The answer is, listen, the answer is God's left you here to make an impact. God's left you here to do something. You have a purpose. You're not just wandering through life. You see, see, we think of pilgrims, we think of that idea of wanderers, and it's just like, well, we're just going to go wherever we feel good. No, 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 God left us here to wander and to follow after him and to make an impact. I, I want you to consider, uh, the, the Bible is clear that as a pilgrim, it's important that we give attention to the two areas where Joseph seems to have excelled. Number one is your testimony. Would you look in verse number six? 
Pharaoh is speaking to Joseph about his brothers and his father and about them coming into his land. He says, the land, and, and look at this last phrase, and if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. Do you know what Pharaoh is saying? He's saying to Joseph, Joseph, if there's any of these brothers that are like you, give them a job to do. I'll, I'll fire all of my shepherds I'll fire all of my, all of my uh, farmers and those that work in my, in my fields and I will hire your brothers in an instant if, if there's any that are like you. What a testimony. Joseph had conducted himself in such a way as a pilgrim in Egypt that, that Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, listen, if you, got a, if you got a brother, you got a family member that is a man of activity like you are, I want them, I want them ruling over some of my affairs. Why, why are you here? What impact are you making down here as a pilgrim? You see, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can, we can lose that balance and we can, we can swing the pendulum from, from caring only about life down here to swing the pendulum to only caring about life up there, if that's even possible, and lose sight of the fact that, no, we, we're still living down here and God has left us here for a reason. And what is that reason? That reason is to have a good testimony to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible, the Bible is clear that we're to let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. What impact have you made as far as your testimony is concerned? When you walk into a room, or when you walk, maybe when you walk out of a room, what is it that's said about you? I... Um, I remember preaching a funeral a number of years ago. And as it was my habit, I, I, I normally try to meet with the family ahead of time. I remember I wasn't able to catch up with this family until just outside the funeral home. And I, um, I said, hey, listen, I'm, you know, I'm the preacher. I'm going to be doing the service. And here's how it normally goes. And I said, I, I often, oftentimes if there's a family member that would like to stand and say something, I'll allow them to do so. Is there anyone that would like to say anything about your dad? I'll never forget, I'll never forget the reply I got. There's two or three of the boys standing there looking, adult men at this point in time, and they said, no. They said, our dad was an abusive man. No one has any good things to say about him. Never forget that. That's probably been 10 years or more ago. I thought to myself, what a shame. I mean, I mean even, even, even those that have lived pretty scoundrel-type lives, Usually at their funeral, somebody can muster enough good things to say something about them. Here was a man who had lived in such a way, there was no one that had anything good to say about them. What impact have you made? Joseph excelled in his testimony. If, if you've got a brother that's like you, let's hire him. I'll put him to work immediately. Not only your testimony, but what impact have you made as far as your family is concerned? Verse number 11, the Bible says, And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread, according to their families. Joseph was diligent to look after and to nourish his family. I think, I think it was like this. Joseph thought to himself, What difference does it make if I save all of Egypt from this famine, from starving in this famine, and yet my family dies? You know, we, we got to get to a point where we think to ourselves, you know, what difference does it make 
If we make such an impact out there, then we make little to no impact in here. You know, our family oftentimes comes in last in our list of priorities. That ought not to be. Joseph's example teaches us that we must never be so busy making an impact in the life and well-being of others that we neglect to make an impact in our own family. And Joseph says, I want you near to me. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to look after you just like I'm looking after everyone who lives in this land. I'm going to look after you and take care of you. So as we conclude this morning, what do you do? Not nearly as important as where are you going. How old are you? Well, that makes a big, big difference to those who life is all about being lived down here. But for those of us who know where we're going, it's not nearly as significant. And what difference have you made in your pilgrimage down here? How's your testimony at work? How's your testimony in the neighborhood? How's your testimony in the church house? Most importantly, how's your testimony at home? Taking care of your family, you're nourishing them, looking after them, meeting not just their physical needs, but trying to meet their mental, emotional, and spiritual needs as well. Pilgrimage. We're all on one. Those of us that are saved, they're born again, we, we live this life with an understanding that this is not all that there is. We're simply wanderers, travelers. We're aliens in some respects. We're, we're resident foreigners. We're here, but this is not where we belong. Our heads